Section two of And Even Now by Max Beerbohm. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section two. How shall I word it? Nineteen ten. It would seem that I am one of those travellers for whom the railway bookstall does not cater. Whenever I start on a journey, I find that my choice lies between well-printed books, which I have no wish to read, and well-written books, which I could not read without permanent injury to my eyesight. The keeper of the bookstall, seeing me gaze vaguely along his shelves, suggests that I should take Fen Country Fanny, or else The Track of Blood, and have done with it. Not wishing to hurt his feelings, I refuse these works on the plea that I have read them, whereon, divining despite me that I am a superior person, says, here is a nice little handy edition of Moore's Utopia, or Carlyle's French Revolution, and again I make some excuse. What pleasure could I get from trying to cope with a masterpiece printed in diminutive greyish type, on a semi-transparent little greyish page. I relieve the bookstall of nothing but a newspaper or two. The other day, however, my eye and fancy were caught by a book entitled How Shall I Word It? and sub-entitled A Complete Letter Writer for Men and Women. I had never read one of these manuals, but had often heard that there was a great and constant demand for them. So I demanded this one. It is no great fun in itself. The writer is no fool. He has evidently a natural talent for writing letters. His style is, for the most part, discreet and easy. If you are a young man writing to father of girl he wishes to marry, or thanking fiancé for present, or reproaching fiancé for being a flirt, or if you are a mother asking governess her qualifications, or replying to undesirable invitation for her child, or, indeed, if you were in any other of the crises which this book is designed to alleviate, you might copy out and post the specially provided letter without making yourself ridiculous in the eyes of its receiver, unless, of course, he or she also possessed a copy of the book. But... Well, can you conceive anyone copying out and posting one of these letters, or even taking it as the basis for composition? You cannot. That shows how little you know of your fellow creatures. Not you nor I can plumb the abyss at the bottom of which such humility is possible. Nevertheless, as we know by the great and constant demand, there the abyss is and there multitudes are at the bottom of it. Let's peer down. No, all is darkness. But faintly, if we listen hard, is borne up to us a sound of the scratching of innumerable pens, pens whose wielders are all trying, as the author of this handbook urges them, to be original, fresh, and interesting by dint of more or less strict adherence to sample. Giddily you draw back from the edge of the abyss. Come, here is a thought to steady you. The mysterious great masses of helpless folk for whom 
how shall I word it, is written, are sound at heart, delicate in feeling, anxious to please, most loath to wound, for it must be presumed that the author's style of letter-writing is informed as much by a desire to give his public what it needs, and will pay for, as by his own beautiful nature. And in the course of all the letters that he dictates, you will find not one harsh word, not one ignoble thought or unkind insinuation. In all of them, though so many are for the use of persons placed in the most trying circumstances, and some of them are for persons writhing under a sense of intolerable injury, sweetness and light do ever reign. Even yours truly, Jacob Langton, in his letter to his daughter's mercenary fiancé, mitigates the sternness of his tone by the remark that his task is inexpressibly painful, and he, Mr. Langton, is the one writer who lets the post go out on his wrath. When Horace Masterton, of Thorpe Road, Putney, receives from Miss Jessica Weir, of Fir Villa, Blackheath, a letter declaring her change of feelings, does he upbraid her? No. It was honest and brave of you to write to me so straightforwardly, and at the back of my mind I know you have done what is best. I give you back your freedom only at your desire. God bless you, dear. Not less admirable is the behavior, in similar case, of Cecil Grant, 14 Glover Street, Streatham. Suddenly, as a bolt from the blue, comes a letter from Miss Louis Hawk, Elmview Deerhurst, breaking off her betrothal to him. Haggard, he sits down to his desk. His pen traverses the note-paper. Calling down curses on Louis and on all her sex? No. One cannot say good-bye forever without deep regret to days that have been so full of happiness. I must thank you sincerely for all your great kindness to me, with every sincere wish for your future happiness. He bestows complete freedom on Miss Hawk, and do not imagine that in the matter of self-control and sympathy, of power to understand all and pardon all, the men are lagged behind by the women. Miss Layla Johnson, the manse, Carlyle, has observed in Leonard Wace, Dover Street, Saltburn, a certain coldness of demeanour. Yet, I do not blame you, it is probably your nature. And Layla, in her sweet forbearance, is typical of all the other pained women in these pages. She is but one of a crowd of heroines. Face to face with all this perfection, the not-perfect reader begins to crave some little outburst of wrath, of hatred or malice, from one of these imaginary ladies and gentlemen. He longs for, how shall he word it, a glimpse of some bad motive, of some little lapse from dignity. Often, passing by a pillar-box, I have wished I could unlock it and carry away its contents, to be studied at my leisure. I have always thought such a hall would abound in things fascinating to a student of human nature. One night, not long ago, 
I took a waxen impression of the lock of the pillar-box nearest to my house, and had a key made. This implement I have as yet lacked either the courage or the opportunity to use, and now I think I shall throw it away. No, I shan't. I refuse, after all, to draw my inference that the bulk of the British public writes always in the manner of this handbook. Even if they all have beautiful natures, they must sometimes be sent slightly astray by inferior impulses, just as are you and I. And, if ere they must, surely it were well they should know how to do it correctly and forcibly. I suggest to our author that he should sprinkle his next edition with a few less righteous examples, thereby both purging his book of its monotony and somewhat justifying its subtitle. Like most people who are in the habit of writing things to be printed, I have not the knack of writing really good letters, but let me crudely indicate the sort of thing that our manual needs. Letter from poor man to obtain money from rich one. Editor's Note. The English law is particularly hard on what is called blackmail. It is therefore essential that the applicant should write nothing that might afterwards be twisted to incriminate him. End of Editor's Note. Dear Sir, Today, as I was turning out a drawer in my attic, I came across a letter which, by a curious chance, fell into my hands some years ago, and which, in the stress of grave pecuniary embarrassment, had escaped my memory. It is a letter written by yourself to a lady, and the date shows it to have been written shortly after your marriage. It is of a confidential nature, and might, I fear, if it fell into the wrong hands, be cruelly misconstrued. I would wish you to have the satisfaction of destroying it in person. At first I thought of sending it on to you by post, but I know how happy you are in your domestic life, and probably your wife and you, in your perfect mutual trust, are in the habit of opening each other's letters. Therefore, to avoid risk, I would prefer to hand the document to you personally. I will not ask you to come to my attic, where I could not offer you such hospitality as is due to a man of your wealth and position. You will be so good as to meet me at 3 a.m. sharp, tomorrow, Thursday, beside the tenth lamp post to the left on the Surrey side of Waterloo Bridge, at which hour and place we shall not be disturbed. I am, dear sir, yours respectfully, James Gridge. Letter from Young Man Refusing to Pay His Tailor's Bill Mr. Eustace Davenant has received the half-servile, half-insolent screed, which Mr. Yardley has addressed to him, let Mr. Yardley cease from crawling on his knees and shaking his fist. Neither this posture nor this gesture can wring one bent farthing from the pockets of Mr. Davenant, who was a minor at the time when that series of ill-made suits was supplied to him, and will hereafter, as in the past, shout, without prejudice, from the housetops, that of all the tailors in London, Mr. Yardley is at once the most grasping and the least competent. Letter to thank author for inscribed copy of book. 
Dear Mr. Emmanuel Flower, It was kind of you to think of sending me a copy of your new book. It would have been kinder still to think again and abandon that project. I am a man of gentle instincts, and do not like to tell you that a flight into Arcady, of which I have skimmed a few pages, thus wasting two or three minutes of my not altogether worthless time, is trash. On the other hand, I am determined that you shall not be able to go around boasting to your friends, if you have any, that this work was not condemned, derided, and dismissed by your sincere well-wisher, Rexford Cripps. Letter to Member of Parliament Unseated at General Election Dear Mr. Pobsby Burford, Though I am myself an ardent Tory, I cannot but rejoice in the crushing defeat you have just suffered in West Ongetown. There are moments when political conviction is overborne by personal sentiment, and this is one of them. Your loss of the seat that you held is the more striking by reason of the splendid manner in which the northern and eastern divisions of Ongetown have been wrested from the Liberal Party. The great bulk of the newspaper-reading public will be puzzled by your extinction in the midst of our party's triumph. But then, the great mass of the newspaper-reading public has not met you. I have. You will probably not remember me. You are the sort of man who would not remember anybody who might not be of some definite use to him. Such, at least, was one of the impressions you made on me when I met you last summer at a dinner given by our friends the Pelhams. Among the other things in you that struck me were the blatant pomposity of your manner, your appalling flow of cheap platitudes, and your hoggish lack of ideas. It is such men as you that lower the tone of public life, and I am sure that in writing to you thus I am but expressing what is felt, without distinction of party, by all who sat with you in the late Parliament. The one person in whose behalf I regret your withdrawal into private life is your wife, whom I had the pleasure of taking in to the aforesaid dinner. It was evident to me that she was a woman whose spirit was well-nigh broken by her conjunction with you. Such remnants of cheerfulness as were in her I attributed to the parliamentary duties which kept you out of her sight for so very many hours daily. I do not like to think of the fate to which the free and independent electors of West Ogetown have just condemned her. Only remember this. Chattel of yours, though she is, and timid and humble, she despises you in her heart. I am, dear Mr. Pobsby Burford, yours very truly, Harold Thislake. Letter from Young Lady in answer to invitation from Old Schoolmistress. My dear Miss Price, how awfully sweet of you to ask me to stay with you for a few days but how can you think I may have forgotten you, for, of course, I think of you so very often, and of the three years I spent at your school, because it is such a joy not to be there any longer, and if one is at all down, it bucks one up directly to remember that that's all over at any rate, and that one has enough food to nourish one, and not that awful monotony of life, 
and not the petty-fogging daily tyranny you went in for, and I can imagine no greater thrill and luxury, in a way, than to come and see the whole dismal grind still going on, but without me being in it. But this would be rather beastly of me, wouldn't it? So please, dear Miss Price, don't expect me, and do excuse mistakes of English composition and spelling and etc. in your affectionate old pupil, Emily Therese Lynn Royston. P.S. I often write to people telling them where I was educated and highly recommending you. Letter in Acknowledgement of Wedding Present Dear Lady Amblesham, Who gives quickly, says the old proverb, gives twice. For this reason, I have purposely delayed writing to you, lest I should appear to thank you more than once for the small, cheap, hideous present you sent me on the occasion of my recent wedding. Were you a poor woman, that little bowl of ill-imitated Dresden china would convict you of tastelessness merely. Were you a blind woman, of nothing but an odious parsimony. As you have normal eyesight, and more than normal wealth, your gift to me proclaims you at once a Philistine and a miser, or rather did so proclaim you, until, less than ten seconds after I had unpacked it from its wrappings of tissue paper, I took it to the open window and had the satisfaction of seeing it shattered to atoms on the pavement. But stay, I perceive a possible flaw in my argument. Perhaps you were guided in your choice by a definite wish to insult me. I am sure, on reflection, that this was so. I shall not forget. Yours, etc., Cynthia Beaumarsh. P.S. My husband asks me to tell you to warn Lord Amblesham to keep out of his way, or to assume some disguise so complete that he will not be recognized by him and horsewhipped. P.P.S. I am sending copies of this letter to the principal London and provincial newspapers. Letter from... But enough. I never thought I should be so strong in this line. I had not foreseen such copiousness and fatal fluency. Never again will I tap these deep, dark reservoirs in a character that had always seemed to me, on the whole, so amiable. End of section 2